the subtle, deceiving dawn before dawn, slid over the desert, and the commander of the Clachian detachment wasn't happy about it. The Deregs always attacked at dawn, all of them. It didn't matter how many of them there were, or how many of you there were. Anyway, the whole tribe attacked. It wasn't just the women and children, but the camels, goats, sheep and chickens too. Of course you were expecting them, and bows could cut them down, but they always appeared suddenly, as if even the desert had spat them out. Get it wrong, be too slow, and you'd be hacked, kicked, butted, pecked, and viciously spat at. His troops lay in wait. Well, if you could call them troops, he'd said they were overstretched. Well, he hadn't actually said, because that sort of thing could get you into trouble in this man's army, but he'd thought it very hard. Half of them were keen kids who thought that if you went into battle shouting and waving your sword in the air, the enemy just ran away. They'd never faced a dreg chicken coming in at eye height. As for the rest of it, in the night people had run into one another, ambushed one another by mistake, and were now as jittery as peas on a drum. A man had lost his sword and swore that someone had walked away with it, stuck right through him, and some kind of rock had got up and walked around him hitting people, with other people. The sun was well up now. It's the waiting that's the worst part, said his sergeant next to him. It might be the worst part, said the commander, or there again, the bit where they suddenly rise out of the desert and cut you in half might be the worst part. He stared mournfully at the treacherously empty sand. Or the bit where a maddened sheep tries to gnaw your nose off might be the worst part. In fact, when you think of all the things that can happen when you're surrounded by a horde of screaming dregs, the bit where they aren't there at all is, I think you'll find, the best part. The sergeant wasn't trained for this sort of thing, so he said, They're late. Good. Rather them than us. Sun's right up now, sir. The commander looked at his shadow. It was full day, and the sand was mercifully free of his blood. The commander had been pacifying various recalcitrant parts of Clatch for long enough to wonder why, if he was pacifying people, he always seemed to be fighting them. Experience had taught him never to say things like, I don't like it, it's too quiet. There was no such thing as too quiet. They might have decamped in the night, sir, said the sergeant. That doesn't sound like the dregs. They never run away. Anyway, I can see their tents. Why don't we rush them, sir? You haven't fought dregs before, sergeant? No, sir. I've been pacifying the mad savatars in Uhistan, though, and there... The dregs are worse, sergeant. They pacify right back at you. I didn't say how mad the savatars were, sir. Compared to the dregs, they were merely slightly vexed. The sergeant felt that his reputation was being impugned. How about I take a few men and investigate, sir? The commander glanced at the sun again. Already the air was too hot to breathe. Oh, very well, let's go. The Clachians advanced on the camp. There were the tents and the ash of fires, but there were no camels and horses, merely a long scuffed trail leading off among the dunes. Morale began to rise a little. Attacking a dangerous enemy who isn't there is one of the more attractive forms of warfare, and there was a certain amount of assertion about how lucky the dregs were to have run away in time, and some extemporising on the subject of what the soldiers would have done to the dregs if they'd caught them. Who's that? said the sergeant. A figure appeared between the dunes riding on a camel. His white robes fluttered in the breeze. He slid down when he reached the Clatchians and waved at them. Good morning, gentlemen. 
May I persuade you to surrender? Who are you? Captain Carrot, sir, if you would be kind enough to lay down your weapons, no one will get hurt. The commander looked up. Blobs were appearing along the tops of the dunes. They rose and turned out to be heads. They're dregs, sir, said the sergeant. No, dregs would be charging, sergeant. Oh, sorry, shall I tell them to charge, said Carrot. Is that what you'd prefer? The dregs were all along the dunes now. The climbing sun glittered off metal. Are you telling me, the commander began slowly, that you can persuade dregs not to charge? It was tricky, but I think they've got the idea, said Carrot. The commander considered his position. There were dregs on either side. His troop were practically huddling together, and this red-headed, blue-eyed man was smiling at him. How do they feel about the merciful treatment of prisoners, he ventured. I think they could get the hang of it if I insist. The commander glanced at the silent dregs again. Why, he said, why aren't they fighting us, he said. My commander says he doesn't want unnecessary loss of life, sir, said Carrot. That's Commander Vimes, sir. He's sitting on that dune up there. You can persuade armed dregs not to charge and you have a commander? Yes, sir. He says this is a police action. The commander swallowed. We give in, he said. What, just like that, sir, said his sergeant, without a fight? Yes, sergeant, without a fight. This man can make water run uphill and he has a commander. I love the idea of giving in without a fight. I fought for ten years and giving in without a fight is what I've always wanted to do. Water dripped off the boat's metal ceiling and blobbed onto the paper in front of Leonard of Quirm. He wiped it away. It might have been boring, waiting in the small metal can under a nondescript jetty, but Leonard had no concept of the term. Absent-mindedly, he jotted a brief sketch of an improved ventilation system. He started to watch his own hand. Almost without his guidance, taking its instructions from somewhere else in his head, it drew a cutaway of a much larger version of the boat. Here, here and here, there could be a bank of a hundred oars rather than pedals, each one manned, his pencil caressed the paper, by a well-muscled and not overdressed young warrior, a boat that would pass unseen under other boats, take men wherever they needed to go. Here a giant saw affixed to the roof, so that when rowed at speed it could cut the hulls of enemy ships. And here, and here, a tube. He stopped and stared at his drawing for a while. Then he sighed and started to tear it up. Vimes watched from the dune. He couldn't hear much from up here, but he didn't need to. Angua sat down beside him. It's working, isn't it? she said. Yes. What's he going to do? Oh, he'll take their weapons and let them go, I suppose. Why do people follow him? said Angua. Well, you're his girlfriend, you ought to know. That's different. I love him because he's kind without thinking about it. He doesn't watch his own thoughts like other people do. When he does good things, it's because he's decided to do them, not because he's trying to measure up to something. He's so simple. Anyway, I'm a wolf living with people, and there's a name for wolves that live with people. If he whistled, I'd come running. Vimes tried not to show his embarrassment. Angua smiled. Don't worry, Mr Vimes, you've said it yourself. Sooner or later, we're all someone's dog. It's like hypnotism, said Vimes hurriedly. People follow him to see what's going to happen next. 
They tell themselves that they're just going along with it for a while and can stop at any time they want to, but they never want to. It's damn magic. No. Have you ever really watched him? I bet he'd found out everything about Jabbar by the time he'd talked to him for ten minutes. I bet he knows the name of every camel, and he'll remember it all. People don't take much interest in other people, usually. Her fingers idly traced a pattern in the sand. So he makes you feel important. Politicians do that, Vimes began. Not the way he does, believe me. I expect Lord Vetinari remembers facts about people. Oh, you'd better believe that. But Carrot takes an interest. He doesn't even think about it. He makes space in his head for people. He takes an interest and so people think they're interesting. They feel better when he's around. Vimes glanced down. Her fingers were drawing aimlessly in the sand again. We're all changing in the desert, he thought. It's not like the city, hemming your thoughts in. You can feel your mind expand to the horizons. No wonder this is where religions start. And suddenly here I am, probably not legally, just trying to do my job. Why? Because I'm too damn stupid to stop and think before I give chase, that's why. Even Carrot knew better than to do that. I'd have just chased after Ahmed's ship without a thought, but he was bright enough to report back to me first. He did what a responsible officer ought to do. But me? Vetinari's terrier, he said aloud. Chase first and think about it afterwards. His eye caught the distant bulk of Gebra. Out there was a Clatchian army, and somewhere over there was the Ankh-Morpork army, and he was with a handful of people and no plan because he'd chased first, and... But I had to, he said. Any copper wouldn't have let a suspect like Ahmed get... Once again he had the feeling that the problem he was facing wasn't really a problem at all. It was something very obvious. He was the problem. He wasn't thinking right. Come to think of it, he hadn't really thought at all. He glanced down again at the trapped company. They had stripped down to their loincloths and were looking very sheepish, as men generally do in their underwear. Carrot's white robe still flapped in the breeze. He hasn't been here a day, thought Vimes, and already he's wearing the desert like a pair of sandals. Ah, uh, bingly, 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 beep. Is that your demon diary, said Angua. Vimes rolled his eyes. Yes, although it seems to be talking about someone else. Ah, uh, 3 p.m., the demon muttered slowly. Day not filled in. Check wall defences. See, it thinks I'm in Ankh-Morpork. It costs Sybil three hundred dollars and it can't even keep track of where I am. He flicked his cigar butt away and stood up. I'd better get down there, he said. After all, I am the boss. He slithered his way down the dune and strolled towards Carrot, who salaamed to him. A salute would do, Captain. Thanks all the same. Sorry, sir. I think I got a bit carried away. Why have you made them strip off? Makes them a bit of a laughing stock when they return, sir. A blow to their pride. He leaned closer and whispered, I've let their commander keep his clothes on, though. It doesn't do to show up the officers. Really, said Vimes. And some want to join us, sir. There's Gorif's lad and a few others. They were just dragooned into the army yesterday. They don't even know why they're fighting, so I said they could. Vimes took the captain aside. Er, uh, I don't remember suggesting that any of the prisoners joined us, he said quietly. Well, sir, I thought what with our army approaching, and since quite a lot of these lads are from various corners of the Empire and don't like the Clatchians any more than we do, I thought that a flying column of guerrilla fighters... We aren't soldiers. Er, uh, 
I thought we were soldiers. Yes, yes, all right, in a way. But really, we're coppers, like we've always been. We don't kill people unless... Ahmed? Everyone's slightly on edge when he's around. He worries people. He gets information from all over the place. He seems to go where he pleases, and he's always around where there's trouble. Damn, damn, damn. He ran through the crowd until he reached Jabbar, who was watching Carrot with the usual puzzled smile that Carrot caused in innocent bystanders. Three days, said Vimes. Three days, that's seventy-two hours. Yes, Offendi, said Jabbar. It was the voice of someone who recognised dawn, noon and sunset, and just let everything in between happen whenever it liked. So why is he called seventy-one hour Ahmed? What's so special about the extra hour? Jabbar grinned nervously. Did he do something after seventy-one hours? said Vimes. Jabbar folded his arms. I will not say. He told you to keep us here? Yes. But not to kill us? Oh, I would not kill my friend, Sir Sam Mule. And don't give me all that eyeball rubbish, said Vimes. He wanted time to get somewhere and do something, right? I will not say. You don't need to said Vimes, because we are leaving, and if you kill us, well, probably you can, but 71-hour Ahmed would not like that, I expect. Jabbar looked like a man making a difficult decision. He will be coming back, he said. Tomorrow, no problem. I'm not waiting, and I don't think he wants me killed, Jabbar. He wants me alive. Carrot? Carrot hurried over. Yes, sir? Vimes was aware that Jabbar was staring at him in horror. We've lost Ahmed, he said. Even Agua can't pick up his trail with the sand blowing all over the place. We've got no place here. We're not needed here. But we are, sir, Carrot burst out. We could help the desert tribes. Oh, you want to stay and fight, said Vimes, against the Clatchians, against the bad Clatchians, sir. Ah, well, that's the trick, isn't it? When one of them comes screaming at you, waving a sword, how do you spot his moral character? Well, you can stay if you like and fight for the good name of Aunt Borpork. It should be a pretty short fight, but I'm off. Jenkins probably hasn't got afloat again. OK, Jabbar? The dreg was staring at the desert sand between his feet. You know where he is now, don't you? Vimes prompted. Yes. Tell me. No, I swore to him. But dregs are oath-breakers, everyone knows that. Jabbar gave Vimes a grin. Oh, oaths, stupid things. I gave him my word. He won't break it, sir, said Carrot. Dregs are very particular about things like that. It's only when they swear on gods and things that they'll ever break an oath. I will not tell you where he is, said Jabbar. But, he grinned again, but there was no humour in it. How brave are you, Mr. Vimes? Stop complaining, Nobby. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying these trousers are a bit drafty, that's all I'm saying. They look good on you, though. And what are these tin bowls supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be protecting the bits you haven't got, Nobby. The way the breeze is blowing, I could do with some to protect the bits I have. Just try and act ladylike, will you, Nobby? Which would be hard, Sergeant Colon had to admit. The lady for whom the clothes had been made had been quite tall and somewhat 
full-figured, whereas Nobby, without his armour, could have hidden behind a short stick if you attached a toast-rack to it about two-thirds of the way up. He looked like a gauzy accordion, with a lot of jewellery. In theory, the costume would have been quite revealing, if Corporal Nobbs was something you wished to see revealed. But there were so many billows and folds now that all one could reliably say was that he was in there somewhere. He was leading the donkey, which seemed to like him. Animals tended to like Nobby. He didn't smell wrong. And them boots don't work, Sergeant Colon went on. Why not? You kept yours on. Yeah, but I'm not supposed to be a flower of the desert, right? A moon of someone's delight shouldn't kick up sparks when she walks. Am I right? They belong to my gran. I ain't leaving her around for anyone to nick, and I ain't mooning for anyone's delight, said Nobby sulkily. Lord Vetinari strode on ahead. The streets were already filling up. Al-Khali liked to get the business of the day started in the cool of dawn, before full day flamethrowered the landscape. No one paid the newcomers any attention, although a few people did turn round to watch Corporal Nobbs. Goats and chickens ambled out of the way as they passed. "'Watch out for people trying to sell you dirty postcards, Nobby,' said Colin. "'My uncle was here once, and he said some bloke tried to sell him a pack of dirty postcards for five dollars. Disgusted he was.' "'Yeah, cos you can get them in the shades for two dollars,' said Nobby. "'That's what he said. And they were on more pork ones. Trying to flog us our own dirty postcards. I call that disgusting, frankly.' "'Good morning, Sultan,' said a cheerful and somehow familiar voice. "'New in town, are we?' All three of them turned to a figure that had magically appeared from the mouth of an alleyway. "'Indeed, yes,' said the patrician. "'I could see you, eh? Everyone is these days, and it is your lucky day. Sir, I am here to help, right? You want something? I got it.' Sergeant Colon had been staring at the newcomer. He said in a faraway voice, "'Your name's going to be something like Al Gibbler or something, right?' "'Heard about me, have you?' said the trader jovially. "'Sorta, yeah,' said Colin slowly. "'You're amazingly familiar.' Lord Vetinari pushed him aside. "'We are strolling entertainers,' he said. "'We are hoping to get an engagement at the Prince's Palace. "'Perhaps you could help.' The man rubbed his beard thoughtfully, causing various particles to cascade into the little bowls in his tray. "'Dunno about the palace,' he said. What's it you do? We practice juggling, fire-eating, that sort of thing, said Vetinari. Do we? said Colon. Al Gibbler nodded at Nobby. What does uh, she, said Lord Vetinari helpfully, she do? Exotic dancing, said Vetinari, while Nobby scowled. Pretty exotic, I should think, said Al Gibbler. You'd be amazed. A couple of armed men had drifted over to them. Sergeant Colan's heart sank. In those bearded faces he saw himself and Nobby, who at home would always saunter over to anything in the street that looked interesting. "'You are jugglers, are you?' said one of them. "'Let's see you juggle, then.' Lord Vetinari gave them a blank look and then glanced down at the tray around Al Gibbler's neck. Among the more identifiable foodstuffs were a number of green melons. "'Very well,' he said and picked up three of them. Sergeant Colon shut his eyes. After a few seconds he opened them again, because a guard had said, All right, but anyone can do it with three. 
In that case, perhaps Mr. Algibla would throw me a few more, said the patrician as the ball spun through his hands. Sergeant Colon shut his eyes again. After a short while, a guard said, Seven is pretty good, but it's just melons. Colon opened his eyes. The Clatchian guard twitched his robe aside. Half a dozen throwing knives glinted. And so did his teeth. Lord Vetinari nodded. To Colon's growing surprise, he did not seem to be watching the tumbling melons at all. Four melons and three knives, he said. If you would care to give the knives to my charming assistant, Betty. Oh, said Nobby. Oh, why not seven knives, then? Kind sirs, that would be too simple, said Lord Vetinari. I am but a humble tumbler. Please let me practice my art. Jugglers will tell you that juggling with items that are identical is always easier than a mixture of all shapes and sizes. This is even the case with chainsaws, although, of course, when the juggler misses the first chainsaw, it is only the start of his problems. Some more will come along very shortly. Betty, said Nobby, glowering under his veils. Three fruits arced gently out of the green whirl and thumped onto Algibla's tray. The guards looked carefully and to Colon's mind nervously at the cross-dressed figure of the cross-corporal. "'She's not going to do any kind of dance, is she?' one of them ventured. "'No,' snapped Betty. "'Promise?' Corporal Nobbs's appearance could be best summarised this way. One of the minor laws of the narrative universe is that any homely-featured man who has for some reason to disguise himself as a woman will apparently become attractive to some otherwise perfectly sane men with, as the ancient scrolls say, hilarious results. In this case, the laws were fighting against the fact of Corporal Nobby Nobbs and gave up. Nobby grabbed three of the knives and tugged them out of the man's belt. "'I'll give them to his lord, uh, to him, shall I, Betty?' said Colon, suddenly quite sure that keeping the patrician alive was almost certainly the only way to avoid a brief cigarette in the sunshine. He was also aware that other people were drifting over to watch the show. "'To me, please. Al,' said the patrician, nodding. Colon tossed the knives, slowly and gingerly. "'He's going to try and stab the guards,' he thought. "'It's a ruse, and then everyone's going to tear us apart.' Now the circling blur glinted in the sunlight. There was a murmur of approval from the crowd. Yet somehow dull, said the patrician, and his hands moved in a complex pattern that suggested that his wrists must have moved through one another at least twice. The tangled ball of hurtling fruit and cutlery leapt into the air. Three melons dropped to the ground, cut cleanly in two. Three knives thudded into the dust a few inches from their owner's sandals. And Sergeant Colon looked up into a growing, greenish, expanding... The melon exploded, and so did the audience, but both their laughter and the humour were slightly lost on Colon as he scraped overripe pith out of his ears. The survival instinct cut in again. Stagger around backwards, it said, so he staggered around backwards, waving his legs in the air. Fall down heavily, it said, so he sat down and almost squashed a chicken. Lose your dignity, it said. Of all the things you've got, it's the one you can most afford to lose. Lord Vetinari helped him up. Our very lives depend on your appearing to be a stupid fat idiot, he hissed, putting Colon's fez back on his head. I ain't very good at acting, sir. Good. Yes, sir. The patrician scooped up three melon halves and positively skipped over to a stall that a woman had just set up, snatching an egg from a basket as he went past. Sergeant Colon blinked again. This was not real. 
the patrician didn't do this sort of thing. Ladies and gentlemen, you see an egg, and here we have a melon rind. Egg, melon, melon, egg. We put the melon over the egg. His hands darted across the three halves, switching them at bewildering speed. Round and round they go, just like that. Now, where's the egg? What about you, Shah? Algibla smirked. It's the one on the left, he said. It always is. Lord Vetinari lifted the melon. The board below was eggless. And you, noble guardsman. It's got to be the one in the middle, said the guard. Yes, of course. Oh, dear, it isn't. The crowd looked at the last melon. They were street people. They knew the score. When the object can be under one of three things and it's already turned out not to be under two of them, then the one place it was certainly not going to be was under the third. Only some kind of gullible fool would believe something like that. Of course there was going to be a trick. There was always a trick. But you watched it in order to see a trick done well. Lord Vetinari raised the melon nevertheless and the crowd nodded in satisfaction. Of course it wasn't there. It'd be a pretty poor day for street entertainment if things were where they were supposed to be. Sergeant Colon knew what was going to happen next, and he knew this because for the last minute or so something had been pecking at his head. Aware that this was probably his moment, he raised his fez and revealed a very small, fluffy chick. Have you got a towel? I'm afraid it's just gone to the toilet on my head, sir. There was laughter, some applause, and to his amazement, a tinkling of coins around his feet. And finally, said the patrician, the beautiful Betty will do an exotic dance. The crowd fell silent. Then someone at the back said, How much do we have to pay for her not to? Right, I've just about had enough of this. Veils flying out behind her, bangles jingling, elbows waving viciously, and boots kicking up sparks. The lovely Betty strode into the crowd. Which of you said that? People shrank away from her. Armies would have retreated. And there, revealed like a jellyfish deserted by a suddenly ebbing tide was a small man about to fry in the wrath of the ascendant knobs. I meant no offence, O oh doe-eyed one. Oh, pastry-faced, am I? Nobby flung out an arm in a crash of bracelets and knocked the man over. You've got a lot to learn about women, young man. And then, because a knobs could never resist a prone target, the petite Betty drew back a steel-capped boot. Betty? snapped the patrician. Oh, right, yeah, right said Nobby, with veiled contempt. Everyone can tell me what to do, right? Just because I happen to be the woman around here, I'm supposed to accept it all, eh? No, you just ain't supposed to kick him in the fork, hissed Colon, pulling him away. It don't look good. Although he noted the women in the crowd seemed to be disappointed by the sudden curtailment of the performance. And there are many strange stories we can tell you, shouted the patrician. Betty certainly could, murmured Colon and was kicked sharply on his ankle. And many strange sights we can show you. Betty certainly... Ow! But for now we will seek the shade of yonder caravanserai. What are we doing? We're going to the pub. The crowd began to disperse, but with occasional amused glances back at the trio. One of the guards nodded at Colon. Nice show, he said, especially the bit where your lady didn't remove any veils. He darted behind his colleague as Nobby spun round like an avenging angel. Sergeant, the patrician whispered, it is very important that we learn the current whereabouts of Prince Kadram, do you understand? In taverns, people talk. 
Let us keep our ears open. The tavern wasn't Colon's idea of a pub. For one thing, most of it had no roof. Arched walls surrounded a courtyard. A grapevine grew out of a huge cracked urn and had been teased overhead on trellises. There was the gentle sound of tinkling water, and unlike the mended drum, this was not because the bar backed onto the privies, but because of a small fountain in the middle of the cobbles. And it was cool, much cooler than in the street, even though the vine leaves scarcely hid the sky. Didn't know you could juggle, sir, Colon whispered to Lord Vetinari. You mean you can't, Sergeant? No, sir. How strange. Hardly a skill, is it? One knows what the objects are and where they want to go. After that, it's just a case of letting them occupy the correct positions in time and space. You're dead good at it, sir. Practice often, do you? Until today, I've never tried. Lord Vetinari looked at Colon's astonished expression. After Ankh Morpork, Sergeant, a handful of flying melons present a very minor problem indeed. I'm amazed, sir. And in politics, Sergeant, it is always important to know where the chicken is. Colon raised his fez. Is this one still on my head? It seems to have gone to sleep. I wouldn't disturb it if I were you. Uh, you, juggler, she can't come in here. They looked up. Someone with a face and apron that said barman in seven hundred languages was standing over them, a wine jug in each hand. No woman in here, he went on. Why not, said Nobby. No women asking questions neither. Why not? Because it is written, that's why. Where am I supposed to go, then? The barman shrugged. Who knows where women go? Off you go, Betty, said the patrician, and listen for information. Nobby grabbed the cup of wine from Colon and gulped it down. I don't know, he moaned. I've only been a woman ten minutes and already I hate you male bastards. I don't know what's got into him, sir, whispered Colon as Nobby stamped out. He ain't like this normally. I thought Clatchian women did what they were told. Does your wife do what she's told, Sergeant? Well, yeah, obviously. A man's got to be the master in his own house. That's what I always say. So why are you, I hear, always putting up kitchen furniture? Well, obviously you got to listen to... In fact, Clatchian history is full of famous examples of women who even went to war with their men, said the patrician. What? On the same side? Prince Arkvin's wife, Tistum, used to ride into the battle with her husband and, according to legend, killed ten thousand thousand men. That's a lot of men. Legends are prone to inflation. However, I believe there is good historical evidence that Queen Sawawandra of Sumitri had more than thirty thousand people put to death during her reign. She could be quite touchy, they say. You should hear my wife if I don't put the plates away, said Sergeant Colon gloomily. Now we are integrated with the local population, Sergeant, said the patrician. We must find out what is happening. Although an invasion is clearly planned, I feel sure Prince Kadram will have reserved some forces in case of land attack. It would be nice to know where they are, because that's where he will be. Right. You think you can handle this? Yes, sir. I know Clatchin, sir. Don't you worry about that. Here's some money. Buy drinks for people. Mingle. Right. Not too many drinks, but as much mingling as you are capable of. I'm a good mingler, sir. Off you go, then. Sir? Yes. I'm a bit worried about Betty, sir, going off like that. 
Anything might happen to, him, uh, to her. But he spoke with some hesitation. There wasn't much you could imagine happening to Corporal Nobbs. I'm sure we shall hear about it if there are any problems, said the patrician. You're right there, sir. Colon sidled over to a group of men who were sitting in a rough circle on the floor, talking quietly amongst themselves and eating from a large dish. He sat down. The men on either side of him obediently shuffled along. Now then, how did you... All right. Anyone knew how Clatchians talked. Greetings, fellow brothers of the dessert, he said. I don't know about you, but I could just do with a plate of sheep's eyeballs, eh? I bet you boys can't wait to be back on your camels, I know I can't. I spit upon the defiling dogs of Ankh-Morpork. Anyone had any backsheesh lately? You can call me Al. Excuse me, are you the lady who is with the clowns? Corporal Nobbs, who had been trudging along gloomily, looked up. He was being addressed by a pleasant-faced young woman. A woman actually talking to him by choice was a novelty. Smiling while doing so was unheard of. Eh, right, yeah, that's me, he swallowed. Betty. My name is Barna. Would you like to come and talk with us? Nobby looked past her. There were a number of women of varying ages sitting around a large well. One of them waved at him shyly. He blinked. This was uncharted territory. He looked down at his clothes, which were already the worse for wear. His clothes always looked the worse for wear five minutes after he'd put them on. Oh, don't worry, said the girl. We know how it is, but you look so alone, and perhaps you can help us. They were among the group now. There were women of every legitimate shape and size, and so far none of them had said yuck, an experience hitherto unchronicled in Nobby's personal history. In a detached, light-headed way, Corporal Nobbs felt that he was entering paradise, and it was only an unfortunate detail that he'd come in via the wrong door. "'We are trying to comfort Netal,' said the girl. "'Her betrothed won't marry her tomorrow.' "'The swine!' said Nobby. One of the girls, eyes red with crying, looked up sharply. "'He wanted to,' she sobbed, "'but he's been taken off to fight in Gebra, "'all over some island no one's heard of, "'and all my family are here.' "'Who took him off?' said Nobby. "'He took himself off,' snapped an older woman. "'Clothing differences aside, "'there was something hauntingly familiar about her, "'and Nobby realised that if you cut her in half, "'the words... Mother-in-law would be all the way through. Oh, Mrs. Atbar, said Natal, he said it was his duty. Anyway, all the boys have had to go. Men, said Nobby, rolling his eyes. I expect you know a lot about the pleasures of men, then, said Mother-in-law sourly. Mother! Who, me? said Nobby, forgetting himself for a moment. Oh, yeah, lots. You do? Why not? Beer's favourite, said Nobby, but you can't beat a good cigar as long as it's free. Huh. Mother-in-law picked up a basket of washing and stamped away, followed by most of the older women. The others laughed. Even the disappointed Natal smiled. I think that's not what she meant, said Barna. To a chorus of giggles, she leaned down and whispered in Nobby's ear. His expression did not change, but it did seem to solidify. Oh, that, he said. There were some worlds of experience which Nobby had only contemplated on a map, but he knew what she was talking about. Of course he'd patrolled certain parts of the Shades in his time, 
the ones where young ladies tended to hang around without very much to do, and probably catching cold too, but those areas of police work that in other places might be of interest to a vice squad now tended to be looked after by the Guild of Seamstresses themselves. People who neglected to obey the, no, not the law as such, called them the unwritten rules, as laid down by Mrs. Palm and her committee of very experienced ladies, attracted the attention of the agony aunts, Dotsy and Sadie, and might or might not be seen again. And Mr. Harris of the Blue Cat Club. His admission caused a lot of argument in the Guild, who knew competition when they saw it, but Mrs. Palm overruled opposition on the basis, she said, that unnatural acts were only natural. Even Mr. Vimes approved of the arrangement. It didn't cause paperwork. Oh, yeah, said Nobby, still staring at some inner screen. Of course, he knew what. Oh, that, he mumbled. Well, I've uh, seen a thing or two, he added. Largely on postcards, he had to admit. It must be wonderful to have so much freedom, said Barna. Well, uh... Natal burst out crying again. Her friends fluttered around her. I don't see why the men have to go off like this, said Barna. My betrothed has gone too. There was a cackle from a very old woman sitting by the well. I can tell you why, dears. Because it's better than growing melons all day. It's better than women. Men think war is better than women? It's always fresh. It's always young. And you can make a good fight last all day. But they get killed. Better to die in battle than in bed, they say. <laughs> she cracked a toothless grin. But there are good ways for a man to die in bed, eh, Betty? Nobby hoped the glow of his ears wasn't singeing his veil. Suddenly, he felt he'd caught up with his future. Ten damn pence worth of it hit him in the face. Excuse me, he said. Are any of you Nubilians? What are Nubilians? said Barna. It's a country round here, said Nobby. He added hopefully, isn't it? Not a single face suggested that this was so. Nobby sighed. His hand reached up to his ear for a cigarette end, but it came down again empty. I'll tell you this, girls, he said. I wish I'd settled for the ten-dollar version. Don't you just sometimes want to sit down and cry? You look even sadder than Netal, said Barna. Isn't there some way we can cheer you up? Nobby stared at her for a moment and then started to sob. Everyone was staring at Colon, their food halfway to their lips. Did I just hear him say that, Fefal? What do I want to be on a camel for? I'm a plumber. He as the clown with the juggler. I think the poor man is several palms short of an oasis. I mean, the bloody things spit, and they're a bugger to get up the stairs with your toolbox. Now, come on, it's not his fault. Let's show a little charity. The speaker cleared his throat. Good morning, friend, he said. May we invite you to share our couscous? Sergeant Colon peered at the bowl and then dipped in a finger and tasted it. Hey, this is semolina. You've got semolina. It's just ordinary semolina. He stopped and coughed. <coughs> yeah, right, thanks. Uh, got any strawberry jam? The host looked at his friends. They shrugged. We know not of this... Strawberry jam, of which you speak, he said carefully. We prefer it with lamb. 
he offered Colon a long wooden skewer. Oh, you've got to have strawberry jam, said Colon, carried away. When we were kids, we'd stir it in and... and... Uh, he looked at their faces. Of course, that was uh, back in... Uh, he said. The men nodded at one another. Suddenly it was all clear. Colon belched loudly. From the looks he got from everyone else, he was the only one who'd heard of this common Clatchian custom. Uh, so, he said, where's the army these days? Um, approximately. Why do you ask, oh, full of gas one? Oh, we thought we could make a bit of cash entertaining the troops, said Colon. He was immensely proud of this idea. You know, a smileless song, a lack of exotic dancing. But that means we got to know where they are, see? Excuse me, fat one, but can you understand what I am saying? Yes, it's very tasty, Colon hazarded. Ah, I thought so. So he's a spy, but whose? Really, who would be so stupid to use a joke like this as a spy? Ankh Morpork? Oh, come on, he's pretending to be an Ankh Morpork spy, perhaps. But they're cunning over there. You think? A people who make curry out of something called curry powder, and you think they're clever? I reckon he's from Moontab. They're always watching us. And pretending to be from Ankh Morpork? Well, if you were trying to look like a joke, more porky and pretending to be Clatchian, wouldn't you look like that? But why'd he pretend to be from there? <sighs> Politics? Let's call the watch, then. Are you mad? We've been talking to him. They will be inquisitive. Good point, I know. Feyfowl gave Colon a big grin. I did hear the entire army has marched away to en al he said. But don't tell anyone. Have they? Colon glanced at the other men. They were watching him with curiously deadpan expressions. Sounds like a massive place with a name like that, he said. Oh, huge, said his neighbour. One of the other men made a noise that you might think was a suppressed chuckle. It's a long way, is it? No, very close, you're practically on top of it, said Feyfowl. He nudged a colleague, whose shoulders were shaking. Oh, right. Big army, is it? Could easily be very big, yes. Fine, fine, said Colon. Eh, uh, hmm, anyone got a pencil? I could have sworn I had one when I... There was a noise outside the tavern. It was the sound of many women laughing, which is always a disquieting noise to men, usually because they suspect the joke's on them. Customers peered suspiciously through the vines. Colon and the rest of the crowd looked around an urn at the group by the well. An old lady was rolling on the ground laughing, and various younger ones were leaning against one another for support. He heard one of them say, What did he say again? He said, That's funny, it's never done that when I've tried it. Yes, that's true, cackled the old woman. It never does. That's funny, it's never done that when I've tried it. Nobby repeated. Colon groaned. That was the voice and tone of Corporal Nobbs in storytelling mode when Wood could scorch at ten yards. Excuse me, he muttered, and forced his way through the press to the gateway. Have you heard the one about the ki the Sultan who was afraid his wife, well, uh, one of his wives, would be unfaithful to him while he was away? We haven't heard any stories like these, Betty, Barner gasped. Really? How? Oh, I've got a thousand and one of them. Well, anyway, 
he went and saw the wise old blacksmith, right? And he said, You can't go around telling stories like that, Corporal uh, Betty, Colon panted as he lumbered to a halt. Nobby realised that a change had come over the group. Now he was surrounded by women who were in the presence of a man. A known man. He corrected himself. Several of them were blushing. They hadn't blushed before. Why not? said Betty nastily. You'll offend people, said Colon uncertainly. Er, uh, we are not offended, sir, said Barna, in a small, humble voice. We think Betty's stories are very instructive, especially the one about the man who went into the tavern with the very small musician. And that was pretty hard to translate, said Nobby, because they don't really know what a piano is in Clatch, but it turns out there's this kind of stringed... And it was very interesting about the man with his arms and legs in plaster, said Natal. Yeah, they laughed even though they don't have the same kind of doorbells here, said Nobby. Here, you don't have to go. But the group around the well were dispersing. Water jugs were being picked up and carried away. A kind of preoccupied busyness came over the women. Barna nodded at Betty. Ah, uh, thank you. It's been very interesting, but we must go. It was so kind of you to talk to us. Here, yeah, no, don't go. A faint suggestion of perfume hung in the air. Betty glared at Colon. Sometimes I really want to give you a right ding alongside the lug hole, she growled. My first bloody chance in years, and you... She stopped. There was a crowd of puzzled yet disapproving faces behind Colon. And things might have ended otherwise had it not been for the braying of the donkey from above. The stolen donkey, easily pulling away from Nobby's inexpert tether, had wandered off in search of food. She vaguely associated this with the doorway to her stable and therefore with doorways in general, and so had wandered through the nearest open one. There had been some narrow spiral stairs inside, but her stall was pretty narrow and steps didn't worry a donkey that was used to the streets of Alcali. It was only a disappointment when the steps came to an end and there was still no hay. Oh no, said someone behind Colon. There's a donkey up in the minaret again. There were groans all round. What's wrong with that? What goes up must come down, said Colon. You don't know, said one of his dining companions. You don't have minarets in Ur? Um, said Colon. We have plenty of donkeys, said Lord Vetinari. There was general laughter, most of it directed at Colon. One of the men pointed to the dim interior of the minaret. Look, see. A very narrow winding staircase, said the patrician. So, there's nowhere to turn at the top, right? Oh, any fool can get a donkey up a minaret. But have you ever tried getting an animal to go backwards down a narrow staircase in the dark? <laughs> Can't be done. There's something about a rising staircase, said someone else. It attracts donkeys. They think there's something at the top. We had to push the last one off, didn't we? said one of the guards. Right, it's splashed, said his comrade in arms. No one is pushing Valerie off of anything, snarled Betty. Any one of you tries anything like that, and so help me, you'll feel the wrong end of... He stopped, and a wide, horrible grin appeared behind the veil. I mean, I'll give you a great big soppy kiss. Several men at the back of the crowd took to their heels. There's no need to get nasty, said the guard. I mean it, said Betty, advancing. The cowering guard cringed. Can't you do anything with her, sirs? Us, said Lord Vetinari. Afraid not. Oh, dear. It's going to be like that business in Jellababy all over again. 
Ow. Oh dear, said Colan, mugging loyally. The crowd, or at least that part that thought itself sufficiently far away from Betty, started to grin. This was street theatre. I don't know if they ever got that man down off the flagpole, Vetinari went on. Oh, most of him they did, said Colan. Tell you what, tell you what, said the guard hurriedly. Suppose we get a rope round it. Her, Betty growled. Her, right. And then you'd need at least three men up there and there ain't no room. Sir, I've got an idea, whispered one of the guards. I should make it quick, said Colon, because there's no stopping Betty once she gets going. The guards held a whispered argument. We'd get into trouble if we do that. You know all that stuff we were told about the war effort. That's why they were all confiscated. No one will miss it for five minutes. Yeah, but you want to tell the prince we lost one? All right, but do you want to explain to her? They both looked at Betty. And they're easy to steer, after all, one whispered. Valerie, said Sergeant Colon. There is a problem, Betty demanded. No, no, it's a fine name for a donkey knob, um, uh, uh, Betty. No one is to do anything, said one of the guards. We will return. What was that all about, said Colon, watching them go. Oh, they've probably gone to get a carpet, said someone. Very nice, but I don't see how that'd help, said Betty. A flying one. Oh, right, said Colon. They've got one of those up at the university. Ur has a university? Oh, indeed, said the patrician. How do you think that Al learned what a donkey looks like? Once again, laughter dispelled doubt. Colon grinned uncertainly. I'm really getting good at this stupid idiot stuff, aren't I? He said. It just sort of happens. Marvellous said Lord Vetinari. There was another angry braying from far above. Trouble is, they're all locked up because of the war effort, said someone behind them. A piece of mud brick shattered on the ground nearby. The way it's thrashing around up there, it's going to fall off anyway. Perhaps I should persuade her to come down, said the patrician. Can't be done, Offendi. You can't get past on the stairs. You can't turn it round and it won't come down backwards. I shall consider the situation, said the patrician. He ambled back into the tavern for a moment and returned. They saw him enter the door, and then they heard him climbing the staircase. Should be good, said a man behind Colon. After a while, the braying stopped. Can't turn round, see? Far too narrow, said the elevated donkey expert. Can't turn round, won't go backwards, well-known fact. There's always a know-all, right, Betty? said Colon. Yeah, always. The tower was full of silence. Several members of the crowd found their attention drawn to it. I mean, if you could get three or four men up the stairs, which you can't, you could sort of move it a leg at a time if you didn't mind being kicked and bitten to death. All right, all right, back away from the tower, will you? The guards were back. One of them was carrying a rolled-up carpet. All right, all right, give us room. I can hear hooves, said someone. Oh, yeah, like our friend in the fez is getting the donkey down the stairs. Hang on, I can hear them too, said Colon. Now all eyes stared at the door. Lord Vetinari emerged, holding a length of rope. The voice behind Colon said, All right, it's just a bit of rope. He was probably banging a couple of coconut shells together. You mean ones that he found in the minaret? 
He had them with him, obviously. You mean he carries coconut shells around? You can't turn a donkey round... All right, that's a fake donkey head. It's moving its ears. On a string, on a string. All right, it's a donkey. Okay. But it's not the same donkey. It's one he had in a hidden pocket. Well, no need to look at me like that. I've seen them do it with doves. Then even the unbeliever fell silent. Donkey, minaret, said Lord Vetinari. Minaret, donkey. Just like that, said a guard. How did you do it? It was a trick, right? Of course it was a trick, said Lord Vetinari. I knew it was just a trick. That's right. It was just a trick, said Lord Vetinari. So how did you do it then? You mean you can't spot it? The crowd craned to see. Uh, you had an inflatable donkey. Can you think of any reason why I should go around with an inflatable donkey? Well, you... One that you wouldn't mind explaining to your own dear mother? If you're going to put it like that... Seasy, said Al Gibbler. There's a sacred compartment in the minaret, must be. No, you've got it all wrong. It's just an illusion of a donkey. Well, all right, it, it's a good illusion. By now, half the people were around the donkey, and the others were clustered in the doorway of the minaret, looking for secret panels. I think, Al and Betty, this is where we walk away, said Lord Vetinari behind Colon, just down this little alley here, and when we turn that corner, we run. What have we got to run for, said Betty, because I've just picked up the magic carpet. Vimes was already lost. Oh, there was the sun, but that was just a direction. He could feel it on the side of his face. And the camel rocked from side to side. There was no real way of judging distance except by hemorrhoids. I'm blindfolded on the back of a camel ridden by a dreg, who everyone says are the most untrustworthy people in the world, but I'm almost positive he's not going to kill me. So, he said as he rocked gently from side to side, you may as well tell me why seventy-one hour Ahmed? He killed a man, said Jabbar. And dregs object to a little thing like that? In the man's own tent. When he had been his guest for nearly three days. If he had but waited an hour. Oh, I see. Definitely bad manners. Had the man done anything to deserve it? Nothing. Although, yes, the man had killed El Usar. The dreg's tone suggested that it wasn't much of a mitigating circumstance, but that it ought to be mentioned out of completeness. Who was she? El Isar was a village. He poisoned a well. There had been a dispute over religion, he added. One thing led to another, but even so, to break the tradition of hospitality. Yes, I could say that's a terrible thing. Almost impolite. The hour was important. Some things should not be done. You're right there, at least. By mid-afternoon, Jabbar let him take off the blindfold. Wind-carved heaps of black rock stood out of the sand. Vimes thought it was the most desolate place he'd ever seen. They say once it was green, said Jabbar, a well-watered land. What happened? The wind changed. At sunset they reached a wadi between more wind-scoured rocks, and it was only the length of the shadows deepening the shallow indentations that began to give them back an ancient shape. 
They're buildings, aren't they? said Vimes. There was a city here a long time ago. Did you not know? Why should I know? Your people built it. It was called Tacticum, after a warrior of yours. Vimes looked at the crumbled walls and fallen pillars. He had a city named after him, he said to no one in particular. Jabbar nudged him. Ahmed is watching you, he said. I can't see him anywhere. Of course. Get down, and I hope we might meet again in whatever is your paradise. Right, right. Jabbar turned the camel round. It left much faster than it had arrived. Vimes sat on a rock for a while. There was no sound but the hissing of the wind in the rocks and the cry of some bird far away. He thought he could hear his own heart beating. Bingly, bingly, beep! The disorganiser sounded worried and uncertain. Vimes sighed. Yes, appointment with 71-hour Ahmed, eh? Er, uh, no, said the demon. Er, uh, Clatchian fleet sighted. Er, uh, ships of the desert, eh? Er, uh, beep, error code 746 divergent temporal instability. Vimes shook the box. Something wrong with you, he demanded. You're still giving me someone else's appointments, you idiot box. Er, uh, the appointments are correct for Commander Samuel Vimes. That's me. Which one of you? said the demon. What? Beep. It refused to say more. Vimes considered throwing it away, but Sybil would be hurt if she found out. He thrust it back into his pocket and tried to concentrate on the scenery again. His seat might have been part of a pillar once. Vimes saw other pieces some way away, and then realised that a heap of apparent rubble was a fallen wall. He followed this, his footsteps echoing off the cliffs, and realised that he was walking between old buildings, or where buildings had been. Here was the wreck of some stairs, there a stump of a pillar. One was a little higher than the others. He pulled himself up and found, on its flat top, two huge feet. A statue must have stood here. It probably stood, if Vimes knew anything about statues, in some kind of noble attitude. Now it had gone and there were just feet, broken off at the ankles. They weren't exceptionally noble. As he lowered himself again, he saw, protected because this side was out of the wind, some lettering carved deeply into the plinth. He tried to make it out in the fading light. Ab hoc possum videri domum tuum. Well, domum tuum was your house, wasn't it? And videri was I see. What? he said aloud. I can see your house from up here. What kind of a noble sentiment is that? I believe it was meant to be a boast and a threat, Sir Samuel, said 71-hour Ahmed. Somewhat typical of Ankh Morpork, I've always thought. Vimes stood very still. The voice had been right behind him, and it was Ahmed's voice, but it lacked that hint of camel spit and gravel that it had possessed in Ankh Morpork. Now it was the drawl of a gentleman. It's the echoes here, Ahmed went on. I could be anywhere. I could have a crossbow aimed at you right now. You won't fire it, though. We've both got too much at stake. Oh, there is honour among thieves, is there? I don't know, said Vimes. Oh, well. Time to see if he was dead right or just dead. Is there honour 
among policemen? Sergeant Colon's eyes went big. Swing my weight to one side, he said. That's how magic carpets are steered, said Lord Vetinari calmly. Yes, but supposing I swing myself off? We'll have a lot more room, said Betty unfeelingly. Come on, Sarge, you know how to throw your weight around. I ain't throwing my weight anywhere, said Colon firmly. He was lying full length on the carpet, both hands gripping it as hard as possible. It's not natural, just a bit of broad loom between you and certain splash. The patrician looked down. We're not over water, Sergeant. I know what I meant, sir. Can we slow down a bit, said Betty? The breeze is invading my privacy, if you get my drift. Lord Vetinari sighed. We're not going very fast as it is. I suspect this is a very old carpet. There's a frayed bit here, said Betty. Shut up, said Colon. Look, I can poke my finger right through. Shut up. Notice how it kind of wobbles when you move. Shut up. Here, look, those palm trees down there look really small. Nobby, you're scared of heights, said Colon. I know you're scared of heights. That's sexual stereotyping. No, it's not. Yes, it is. You'll be expecting me to break my ankle a lot and scream all the time. Next, it's my job to prove to you that a woman can be as good as a man. Practically identical in your case, Nobby. You've caught too much sun, that's what it is. You are not female, Nobby. Betty sniffed. That's just the sort of sexist remark I'd expect from you. Well, you're not. It's the principle of the thing. Well, at least we now have transport, said Lord Vetinari, his tone suggesting that the show was over. Unfortunately, I had no time to find out where the army is. Ah, I can help you there, sir. Colon tried to salute and then made a grab for the carpet again. I found out by cunning, sir. Really? Yes, sir. It's at a place called Er En Al Sam's Hla Lisa, sir. The carpet drifted onwards for a moment in silence. The place where the sun shineth not, said the patrician. There was more silence. Colon was trying not to look at anyone. Is there a somewhere called Gebra? said Nobby sulkily. Yes, Betty, er, uh, Corporal, there is. They've gone there. Of course, you've only got a woman's word for it. Well done, Corporal. We shall head up the coast. Lord Vetinari relaxed. In a busy and complex life, he'd never met people quite like Nobby and Colon. They talked all the time, yet there was something almost restful about them. He watched the dusty horizon carefully as the ancient carpet curved around. Under his arm was the metal cylinder Leonard had made for him. Drastic times required drastic measures. Sir, said Colon, his voice muffled by the carpet. Yes, Sergeant. I've got to know, how did you, you know, get that donkey down? Persuasion, Sergeant. What? Just talking? Yes, Sergeant. Persuasion. And admittedly a sharp stick. Ah, I knew. The trick of getting donkeys down from minarets, said the patrician, as the desert unwound below them, is always to find that part of the donkey which seriously wishes to get down.